0: Amen. Well, good morning, Anthem. Uh, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Philippians. We'll be in chapter 2 uh, this morning. We're continuing in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And uh, as we've said, this, this letter is written uh, to one of the early churches, and it's essentially unpacking for them what, uh, how to be disciples of Jesus. Uh, really explaining what does it look like to follow Jesus? Who is Jesus? Why is, why is he worth your very life? And then also, what is the work of Jesus? What has he done? And then, and then we're gonna be looking at what is the way of Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And so, uh, so far, uh, we've been through chapter one and we looked at what is the worth of Jesus? Why is Jesus worth your life? Why should we follow Jesus? Why is he worth it? Uh, and this week, uh, Paul, this is a huge, a really important passage, a famous passage. In which Paul transitions from uh, the worth of Jesus to now when he starts talking, he's going to start talking about following in the way of Jesus. But right in the middle, he says, we have to look at the work of Jesus. Now, when I say work of Jesus, you're like, what do you mean by that? And what I mean by that is uh, theologians will use the term, the work, the person and work of Jesus. And when they, they say the work, what they mean is the totality of not just Jesus's work on the cross, Like We think of like Jesus died on the cross, and then three days later, he rose again. Well, uh, when they say the work, they mean the totality of his life, from the incarnation to his obedience on earth, living a sinless life, to then also dying on the cross and rising again, and then also ascending to the Father's right hand. Paul says we need to see how profound that work is before then we can join God in his work. And the reason why he says this is because we often think of Jesus' work, on the, like Jesus's work, right? What Jesus has done, as just kind of like a, a get out of hell card, you know, like salvation, and that's it. Um, but not only is the gospel that, and what Jesus has accomplished, is it how you are saved, but it's not less than that at all. But also, in the way Jesus lives, he shows us what it means to be truly human what it means to be truly human. And so what Paul's going to be talking about today is essentially he's asking us the question, who do you emulate with your life? Uh, And what he's going to say is that because of the work, we see in the work of Jesus of how he both saved us, but also he's showing us what it looks like to live now. So we're essentially not, we're not only saved from hell in the future, but also so we don't make a hell of our lives now. And so, who do you emulate? Who do you model your life after? Because here's the thing. We're going to do it either for good or ill. We're going to model our life after someone. Uh, it reminded me of about a year ago. Our son, Cal, is now four. And if, if you have kids, you know that uh, some children, like somewhere around like an age, like one age and a half, a year and a half, sorry, I have dad brain, uh, an age and a half uh, your children might like walk out and they just like suddenly dress themselves. And you're like, this is amazing, because it's very difficult to dress children. I don't know how, but like my wife was just the first time like, and she's like, why don't you try it? And I was like, why are the buttons so small? And my fingers are so large in comparison to them. Uh, But so it's this moment as a parent, you're like, yes, my children dress themselves now. Well, there are other children who uh, do not learn to dress themselves So quickly and naturally and adapt to it. And Cal is one of those children. And so Cal kind of refused to drive, like wanting, not wanting to learn how to do it. And so I I had been teaching him again and again, okay, here's how you put one, you know, one arm at a time, your pants one leg at a time, and all this. And then one day, about a year ago, so Cal's about three now, and we're in a rush. And I've got all three kids by myself, and I've got to get them in the car and get somewhere. And I look over and Cal still, I've been telling him, Hey, dude, put dress for the day, get ready to go out. And he hasn't dressed yet. And so I finally was like, Cal, I need you, buddy to go downstairs. Can you do this? Can you go downstairs and get dressed for the day? You know, kind of like, can you do this? And he was like, I shall, right? Like he takes up the challenge, like, yes, Papa. I shall return, right? And so he runs off into his room. And so I'm like, okay, we'll see. And so I'm getting the kids all buckled in and and then we're getting in the car and then Cal kind of runs out into the garage behind me. I was like, I'm ready. And I look at him and it's like, got a shirt on. I was like, wow, you put on like a button up and everything. I was like, this is amazing. So I get him into the car and I start, I buckle him in and then we start driving. And at some point I'm looking back in the rearview mirror because the kids are doing something. And I look down and I see that Cal, I can tell. I was like, wait, Cal, what, what are you wearing? And I looked, I was like, is your underwear on the outside of your pants? And he's like, uh-huh. I was like, what? Have I, like, have I ever, have I ever done that? And he's like, no. And I was like, where did you learn, why did you do that? And he was like, Batman, right? I'm like, Batman. And so, <laughs> and I was like, I, okay. I have never and a day like today when it's cold, I understand. If some of you want to wear several layers of underwear, I get it. But none of us would wear it on the outside of our pants, right? Like we learn everything from, here's the point, we learn everything from how to put on our pants, you know, after our underwear and the simple things of life, all the way up to what is the purpose, what is the meaning, what is the the end to our existence. We we learn all these things and everything in between. We learn them somewhere. Someone teaches us, someone models it for us. And what Paul says is in Jesus, in his life, you not only see the work he's done on your behalf, but also he emulates for you the life that you're called to live and what it means to be truly human. And so what we're going to look at today, because Paul, we're going to be spending the next two weeks on verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. And uh, the reason we're doing that is because in verses 1 through 4, Paul is essentially going to say, this is what it looks like to join in the work of of God and join the work of Christ uh, in your lives with one another. Then what he says in verse 5 is, the reason why you're doing this is because something is true, which is how Jesus lived and the work that he's done in your life and on your behalf. And so, in other words, he kind of grounds the the, the, the grounding, what comes first, the foundation, is what comes in verses 6 through 11 because of who jesus is he's saying verses one through four you should live this way so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of take the text in logical order and i'm today going to go through verses six through 11 and that's going to set up going through verses one through four next week makes sense because what jesus what paul says in verse five he assumes he says have this mind or this attitude that is jesus christ have this among you so what is that what is this mind this mindset this attitude as i think the niv says attitude esv says mind whatever translation you have What is that? And then he assumes something. He says, because you can have this. So how do we have it? So that's what we're going to look at today. First, just two points. The work of Jesus, the mind, the mindset of Jesus. What is it? The work of Jesus. And then how to join in that work. How can we have it and join in it? So let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, We have not come here this morning just to share the best of our ideas, uh, the best of our wisdom, uh, the best of our research, for what it means to be truly human, uh, to be creatures who are made in your image. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed, not only in your word very specifically, but even at the culmination of your word, Lord, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, how profound this text, but that truth, that reality is. And so, Lord, this morning, we ask you to help our minds expand, our hearts expand, to see how big, to think bigger thoughts of Jesus, to think bigger thoughts of who you are, and Lord, to just come to the end of ourselves and to the beginning of worship of you. Would you do that work? I can't do it. I can plant in water. Lord, help me plant in water well. But you provide the growth? Would you do that by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most likely, uh, verses 6 through 11 uh, were, were probably a hymn. Uh, And because there's kind of a poetic, in the Greek language, there's a poetic, clear poetic structure that's there. And so probably Paul, maybe Paul wrote the hymn for the church, we don't know, Uh, but it seems like it was inserted here. And so Paul's saying this is something that they probably, when the church would get together, would even chant this hymn or sing this hymn together. And so this hymn is supposed to be something, or this this text, verses 6 through 11, is meant to be something that leads us to worship. Um, and I say this because I'm, I'm going to today get a little bit more kind of into the details than I normally do, because this is an incredibly important what's called Christological passage, okay? Christological just means the study of Christ. And, and, what that, and there are two passages, especially in the New Testament, that this one and then Colossians 1. And those two passages get as close as you can get when you think about how is it that God came in flesh, what, what is this incarnation? What's this idea? How does Jesus come into the world? And what does that have to do with his sufficiency in saving us? And what does that have to do with what it means to be a human being? And, and, and it, gets, it just gets as close as you can get to grasping what is ultimately a mystery. And so at the outset, what I want to say is here how I, uh, here's how I want us to understand this. Good doctrine, okay? Good doctrine or truths, teaching, uh, summaries of what the Bible teaches, what they do is they're not meant to be exhaustive. None of us will walk away from here today just being like, I exhaustively get, my mind has laid out A through Z, everything exhaustively about the incarnation. It's not going to happen. Because the way doctrine works is like this. It kind of protects mystery. And there's always mystery in the biblical text, especially when we're talking about God. And especially about Jesus and how is it in his incarnation that he came into the world. And so uh, the way I understand it is like you, you take things like you have truths, like he is fully God, fully man. Uh, he also came as a vulnerable infant in a manger, yet he is also the Lord of the universe. And and you take these and you kind of in the middle of that. You get as close as you can. And what Paul's going to do in this passage is he's going to take us to the precipice, to the edge, as close as we can get to peering into those truths and understanding them and holding them together. And then the goal is, though, that we would come to the edge of it. And as we look at it, it would bring us to the end of ourselves and to worship. As we look at a God who is way beyond us. I once had a kid's pastor who he said to the kids, he said, okay, your brain is about this big. So everyone do this. Do it real quick. We're going to have a Sunday school lesson right now. I didn't do this in the first service. This is extra tidbits here. Okay, so your brain is about this big. Okay, about your two hands. Now, how big is God? Right? Like you, you you, you can't do it. So why would we think he'd fit into here? And what Paul's going to say is, I'm going to bring you to the edge. I'm gonna, your mind is just going to explode. It's going to expand. You're going to be ready to explode because you see how good Jesus is. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump in. And so I'm going to read the passage, then we're going to jump in, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. clause by clause, sentence by sentence, who though he was in the form of God, verse 6. What does that word form mean? In, in the Greek, the word form here means essentially the exact imprint or the exact nature of the thing it's in the form of. So he is the exact imprint, the exact nature of God. In other words, when Jesus came in flesh, he did not cease to be less than God. So make that clear. He did not cease to be less than God. In other words, when we think of Jesus, we should think of the God who hung the stars in the universe. We should think of the God. Jesus, from eternity past, has been in fellowship, in relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. And in that, 1 John says, God is love. And out of that delight of the Godhead, then overflowed God, creating the cosmos. And we've talked about this here at Anthem, but it's so foundational to see that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible was there. He didn't just like begin with his birth. That That's one, historically, there's a word for that. It's heresy, okay? So Jesus is eternally existent and he is fully God. And what that means is he was there as Psalm or uh, Proverbs 8 says that he was there and he was delighting as wisdom, the embodiment of wisdom saying, yes, Lord, yes, as God is designing and creating the universe, he's there delighting, which also means, and I, this, I remember a few years ago, just looking up on Christmas Eve and, and just all of a sudden being stunned by this truth when I realize, on the morning of his birth, the God who had hung the stars in the heavens and, and the planets, and, and if he were to, as Colossians 1 says, just to let go for a split second, it would all unravel. Then it would all come apart. On the morning of his birth, you can imagine as an infant, as he opened his eyes and the world came into focus, he would look up into the night sky to the stars. And he remembers hanging them. He would remember creating them. And while yet he's vulnerable in this manger, he also holds it together. Again, we come to the edge of mystery. But mystery that makes us in awe that we have a God who is like that. A God who would come, being still the form of God, not letting it go, while still able to come into our world. So when we think thoughts of Jesus, we should think huge, massive, amazing thoughts of Jesus. Whatever thoughts you think, they can be bigger. Who is in the form of God. He rules over the orbit of the planets. He knows every hair on your head. He knows all the truths and the secrets of the, of the universe. Science, if we continue for thousands of years, will but bury, just barely touch the bottom of his knowledge. It's Jesus, fully God, the second person of the Godhead. He's not merely a religious teacher who points to truth. He is truth. But, verse 6 continues, Paul says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is interesting. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the question is, of course, what, what does Paul mean by this? He did not count equality a thing to be grasped. Now, we'll, as we'll see, because how, you know, well, really for time's sake, we could spend like, Hours on each of these clauses. There's so much ink that's been spilled on this text and debate and different view. But but ultimately what's being said here that he did not consider God equality with God a thing to be grasped, that Jesus did not regard his being God as something to be leveraged for his own advantage. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. Jesus did not regard being God as something to be leveraged for his own advantage. Paul puts this simply in, in, in Romans Elsewhere. So remember Paul's letter here, the author here. He says it again in Romans fifteen three. Christ did not please himself. What does that mean? It means that he could have grasped onto the throne. He could have grasped onto the heavens and said, No way am I going down there. Am I going to come in weakness? Am I going to be in humility? Am I going to take on sin and shame and become a sacrifice for their sins? No way am I doing that. I'm hanging on to this. didn't grasp it, but instead, as we're going to see, he leveraged all of the rights and privileges he has as God to save you and me. Now, why does Paul have to say this here before we move on to look at that more? I think what we're getting at here is the first hint into the fact that this is framed as well, because of all the things Paul could have talked about, There's so many things with the incarnation that Paul could have focused on. What he's doing right here is he's essentially, what we should read when we read this, is this is the exact opposite of ourselves. It's the exact opposite of our default, we could say. What do I mean by that? Well, after creating that world that is a cosmos, a theater of glory, the world, God made us as human beings in his image with a unique capacity to join in that delight, right? And in joining in that delight, what would happen is you have God here, and so you have God who we worship, and when we worship God, then we're filled with the joy and the the love and the delight that God has within himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're invited into that, and how are we invited into that? We express it by going, so you have God, man, creation, and we go into the resources and the things of creation, and we cultivate it, and we develop it for God's glory. That's how the story was supposed to go. And that lasted, what, two chapters? <laughs> what happened? What happened? It's interesting because Genesis 2, which kind of unpacks the idea of to have dominion and exercise rule over creation, cultivating it for God's glory. And, and it's, the picture we're given is of Adam being called to name all the animals in the world. How are the animals termed? They're termed the beasts of the field, right? Beasts of the field. And it's an important detail because then, as soon as we go into chapter three, we read how the serpent is is described, and how is the serpent described? He was a beast. He was more crafty than all of the beasts of the field. In other words, what's happening there is already we're seeing a hint that man is not Adam, is not cultivating creation as he ought, exercising dominion as he ought. And what also happens is then, as he comes into, as he allows uh, 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 Satan then to spin this lie, as he's not exercising dominion and saying, "No, you're a part of creation. You cannot speak to who God is. You cannot." I'm going to keep you in your place. Instead, what Satan does is he spins a lie, and it's fundamentally this: that you have glory, you have beauty. Never mind that it's in the image of a God and a creator, but you have glory and you have beauty. And here's the thing. God wants to keep a ceiling on you because he, you're more glorious even than he is. He doesn't want you to know good from bad, good and evil. He's keeping something from you. You see, and what fundamentally happened in the fall was this was that mankind began to see himself as more glorious than what he is. And not only that, but also we began to leverage our glory and all of our rights and all of our privileges for our own good. The exact opposite of what Jesus would do. And so what happened is we instead, after the fall, this is why the Bible can be summed up like this. Before it was God, man, creation. Now fundamentally flips on its head and we have creation and then we have man and we have God. And so what man does is man goes to the things of creation, worshiping the things of creation, going to it, trying to find the things to give him significance and affirmation and to build up a kingdom of saying, I am glorious, building up a tower to the heavens to say, I am like God and I am good. And what happens is that's why life, And salvation in this world, in this world alone, is like trying to climb to the top of the hill and defeat everyone else. Because who's ever at the top of that hill is the most glorious. And we leverage all of our strengths, all of our rights, all of our privileges, not for the sake of others, but for our own good to push others down. We could simply rehearse the tragic story of human history as Exhibit A. And this is why Paul says, This is the state we find ourselves in. And the only hope we have is that the one, if we are a people who sin, and here's the thing this is why sin in the Bible is taken so seriously because we are made in the image of God and we're masquerading as the Lord of the universe, committing things and doing things he would never, ever, ever do. It's like when the people put on like you know, some politician's mask and do things and commit crimes and whatnot, and it's just so vulgar. And, and he's saying, that's what you're doing, putting on the image of God and then running out there and sinning. And so it's only one who has that glory, who comes in the image of God, who comes in flesh, who is true glory, who would leverage that to save you. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And because of that, it means we who try to grasp at glory can be saved. Paul then goes on to explain how God did this in Jesus. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, why does Paul say he emptied himself? There's, this is where there's the most ink in this passage that's spilled. Uh, because often, what we, I think when we read this, if we're not careful, here's what happens. And, and it, it kind of, it, at first, it's meant well. Where we read this and we go, oh, Jesus. How nice is Jesus? Okay, he's this nice. He came into the world, and when he came into the world, he emptied himself of all divine things. Like, Jesus was like, I'm God, but then he came into the world, and he was like, you know what? I want to really be, like, friends with everyone, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually get rid of all of my divine attributes, and I'm going to get rid of all my power, and I'm going to just empty myself of all that, and I'm going to come into the world, and then it's going to be, like, I'm going to be, like, with the people. And everyone's like, man, Jesus is, like, such a nice guy. That's so nice. That's so nice. And then somebody comes along, you're like, by the way, just so we're clear, if he did that, then he's impotent to save you because he's no longer God. And you're like, Jesus, why did you do that, right? Like, what we often think is somehow Jesus emptied himself, at least partially, of his divinity. But that's not what Paul's saying here. How should we understand this? The word in the Greek is a word, kenosis, and this just means literally to pour out or to empty. And the way to read this is not to take it essentially, like, literally, like the way that you would just pour out a cup, and you go, well, that's what Jesus had, a bunch of divine stuff in the cup, and he poured it out, and he was like, here I am, right? And we just take it literally. Instead, this could be taken metaphorically or analogically, because it's not exactly the same, but it's like it. And what's being said here, metaphorically, is that Jesus gave up his status and his privilege. He didn't empty himself of all of his divine attributes, but he gave up his status and his privilege, let me, uh, an illustration I think will help with this. A few, I, I think I shared a few weeks ago that I almost died a couple years ago. Some of you are like, oh, I missed that story. Uh, but a few years ago, medical condition, that I got sick extremely uh, quickly. I had about an 80% mortality rate. Is that how you say it? Yes, stilly, yeah, okay. And, uh, and so in other words, 8% chance of dying, okay? Only 33 years of age. And it's like, so what happened was I needed medical help fast, I need somebody to help stabilize my body. And there was, it was called a thyroid storm. So um, if you know what that is, uh, but I need to see an endocrinologist and somebody in the church knew essentially this, this doctor who was a legend in the field. Uh, he was 81. Uh, he's like the top endocrinologist from LA to San Diego. We lived in Southern California at the time. And the other thing in Southern California see to see a top doctor like that one is well with my finances is impossible. But two, the other thing is, just to get in and see them, the waiting list was almost eight months long. And now here's the thing. This doctor, he could have leveraged all of his rights and his privileges as the top doctor in all of Southern California, the top endocrinologist. And he could have said, you have to wait in line, and then you have to pay this much money, and yada, 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 yada. He could have done all that. Because he, frankly, because he had so many people lined up to see him. In fact, some, in some ways he needs to do that in order to actually get like some order to people coming to him. But what did he do? He literally saw me two days later. He said, when can you come in? I said, I can come in at this time. He said, come in after my patients are done for the day. And I came in at the end of the day. He spent an hour and a half with me. He went over everything that was going on, doing a thorough analysis. He sat and he talked to me to hear how I was doing. Then after he was done with that, when, he, when we got done, he told me he wasn't even going to charge me. And then not only that, then when my test results would come in, he took my personal cell and he would call my cell to personally tell me what was going on. And on, he kept doing this. And, and it was just one of those, like, why is this man doing this? But here's the thing. What he did was he, get, he emptied himself of all of his rights and privileges to care for me. He leveraged them all for my sake. But here's what he did not do. He did not cease to be one of the world's top endocrinologists. That wouldn't be good news for me, right? Like I go in and he's like, hey, well, I made time for you today. And it's like, oh, awesome. Cool. Can you help? And he's like, not really, but I'm here, right? Like that's what would happen if Jesus came into the world and he no longer was divine. But at the same time, he's like, well, I'm here. Isn't this nice? And you're like, I mean, it's a nice story, but it's not going to end well, right? It's the same thing. Just like Dr. Murdoch, he leveraged all of his rights and privileges without emptying himself of his skills and his ability. So also Jesus leveraged, he, he emptied himself of his rights and privileges to come into the world, not saying, no, I'm God. I'm not going to come down there, get myself dirty. Lift yourselves up. But he came emptying himself. He emptied himself of all the rights and privileges, and here's the key. Leveraging them not for his own advantage, but for ours. This is the work of Jesus. You'll find nothing else like it in human history. The next two clauses explain how Jesus emptied himself. It says, by taking the form of a servant. Now, notice the word form again. It's the same word that we saw back in verse 6 when it said he came, he was in the form of God, and so now he's in the form of a servant. You go, wait, did he stop being in the form of God, and now he's in the form of a servant? No, actually what happens here is Jesus is now uh Well, I'll read a quote that I have from a a theologian. Because when you start talking about the Trinity or Jesus in the Incarnation, it's real quick to commit heresy. So I'll read this real quick. (laughs) Bearing in mind that the apostle is writing to Christian readers in Philippi with the pagan past, it seems best on balance to understand the expression, taking the form of a servant with the background of slavery in contemporary society. Slavery pointed to the extreme deprivation of one's rights, even those relating to one's own life and person. When Jesus emptied himself by embracing the divine vocation, becoming incarnate he became a slave without any rights whatsoever he did not exchange the nature and get this listen he did not exchange the nature or form of god for that of a slave instead what did he do he displayed the nature or form of god in the nature or form of a slave thereby showing clearly not only what his character was like but also what it means to be god it's a profound quote See, Jesus doesn't cease to be God when he takes on the form of a servant. Rather, what Jesus does is he shows us the very heart of God. Of all the world, what form can I take so they would see my heart, my love, my grace? A servant. servant but more he said he was being born in the likeness of men now this clearly is just talking about explaining the manner the way in which jesus emptied himself he took on flesh and just so we're clear when we use words in 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 the church like incarnate incarnation right like if uh it comes from like if you know like This is going to get real funky real quick. But when you go to Chipotle and you get like carne asada burritos, right? That carne, you're like, what's carne? It's steak, right? Like it's meat, okay? So carne comes from the word for meat, in other words, or flesh. And so in carne, it literally, he's coming in meat or in flesh, all fully God dwelling in human flesh. You're like, I've never had the incarnation explained with a burrito before. But this is just so we're clear on what's going on there. So he doesn't cease to be God. He's fully God and he's fully man, taking on two natures. He reveals what it looks like, therefore, in living his life. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but this is a profound truth that then in living his life, he's demonstrating what it looks like to truly live as someone made in the image of God. You ever thought about it that way? that Jesus by taking on human flesh, he demonstrates to us when we see Jesus, we see someone fully alive, living perfectly what we are meant, how we are meant to live. But then Jesus, it also allowed coming incarnate to do what we cannot do. Verse eight, and being found in human form There's that form word again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came in human form so that he might take our place. Where we turned against God, where we turned things on its end. What Jesus says, he said, I'm coming into the world and I'm going to leverage all my glory, all my rights, all my privileges, everything about me, my goodness and my truth and my beauty. I'm going to leverage it all. So I can come in and I can turn that right side back up. Theologian B.B. Warfield says it like this. says, Christ Jesus, though he was God, yet cared less for his equality with God, cared less for himself and his own things than he did for us and therefore gave himself us. Jesus wasn't sitting up there like the father's like, go. And he's like, ah, dad, I don't really want to do it. Go, ah, come on. No, what happens is we see God overflowing with his delight and his love, just as he did before time began when he made creation. And now he moves towards us because Jesus is the very heart of God on display. Why did God come into the world? All those things he just pushed to the side for the joy set before him, Hebrews says. because that's our God, that's his heart. To take on human flesh so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins in our place, to die the death that we would have to die. And then we see the result in verses nine through 11. Therefore, because all these things have happened, because Jesus is all this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God looks at Jesus. God the Father looks at Jesus and he says, yes, this is my son. Yes, that's the true king. Yes, he is the one who has taken what was broken and upside down and he's turned it right side up to how it should be so that in Jesus now we have a God who is on the throne and we then have man who is now able to be born again and know him and worship him and return to that original delight of taking the things of the world and cultivating them for his glory cultivating them for worship in living and joyful worship of god jesus isn't on the throne because he's trying to earn himself a throne god didn't look at jesus and go well that's why you get a throne see why jesus is given the throne is because he embodies the very nature of god's reign he's not only a servant he's a servant king And one day forevermore, even beginning now, but his kingdom will be that kingdom forever and ever. And what he calls us to now is to begin to not wait until then, but to see both in his death on the cross and his life, to die to ourselves and to live in him and to see and begin to experience what it means to truly be alive as a human being. So what does it look like to join in the work of Christ? That's last. Let's look there. A helpful passage to flesh this out is Jesus's washing of the disciples' feet. And because here's what I want to say. It would be easy at this point For me to go, do you see how Jesus leverages his rights? Do you see how Jesus uh, 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 sacrifices himself for others and he serves Do you see how Jesus does this? So church, what you need to do is when you leave here, you need to do the same thing. Be easy to do that. So before we jump to next week and we begin to do that in that way, first we got to make sure that we get what Jesus says first, which is first, before you can serve others, you can follow me. You better make sure I've served you. And that's where we're going to drop off this morning, because here's what Jesus does. We're going to go to John 13, and we're going to the scene where Jesus, on the night before he is uh, crucified, his last night with the disciples. And listen to how it's described, because everything that we just talked about in verses 9 through 11 of Jesus essentially having all authority in heavens and earth and being on the throne of God, eventually being throne of God, he said, essentially, that's now been handed over to him, that authority. We're going to see how Jesus responds. Look at this. Uh, this is John 13, 3 through 4. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So somehow at this point, even Jesus hasn't died on the cross. It's kind of a done deal. He's been obedient. He now is the true sacrifice. It's going to happen. And so God has now given the keys of heaven and earth. They're in his hands. He is the the authority over the entire universe at this point. It's it's going to be achieved. It's a done deal. And then look what Jesus does. And that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. I don't know about you, because what's happening here in the first century is When people would walk around, if you don't know this context, you know, in our day, if I were like, hey, let's all wash each other's feet, some of you still would be like, oh, my goodness, like you're thinking like lint in between toes and everything and like weirdly painted toenails, right? We're like, feet are weird, like, and so we're all like, oh, I don't want to think about it. Don't make me think about it, Pastor. Think about it, (laughs) right? Like, oh. Well, in the first century, not only was it that, but also imagine everyone's walking around in like flip-flops, essentially, and they're walking around in a world where cattle are just going through. It's mud. There's no paved streets. So your feet are dusty and dirty. Then you've got just animals everywhere. So there's animal leftovers everywhere, right? And then also people don't know about germ war, or warfare <laughs> or that, uh, germ theory. And so there's, there's not, no one's washing their hands or their body a lot and there's, and there's just, you know, constant sneezing on themselves and doing this and then that stuff kind of, you know, gets on the ground, people throw, and then you're walking through all of this all the time, okay? So when you would go into somebody's home, imagine a group of people show up at your home and you're like, hey, we're here for the Super Bowl party and they walk in with their feet like that and you're like, whoa, hold up, right? You Got to wash your feet before you can come in. And then a servant would come around and a servant, the lowliest servant, their job was to meet them at the door, to get on their hands and feet with a bowl of water and to slowly wash all the filth off their feet. It was the most down in the trenches, dirty, gritty Servant job imaginable. And I don't know about you, but if I was told by the God of the universe, hey, all authority in heaven and earth is now in your hands, I would probably immediately, I mean, ask yourself, what would you do? Right? Like, I know for myself, it's like, do I, what do I do first? Do I own a sports team or do I get a private island? Right? Like, I'm immediately like, woo, and then I'll be benevolent. But, right? Like, first I think that, and I'm like, well, and then I got to get a jet to get there. I mean, <laughs> how am I going to get there? So, I need a jet. Uh, so, I'm going to think to that, but what would you do? What would you do? See, here's the thing. This is why we are not Jesus. Because Jesus, at that moment, what does he do? all the power you can imagine. And he gets down on his knees, and here's what's more. The description here of him taking on the attire of a servant is going to be strangely foreshadowing the attire he will wear on the cross. Why is John describing it that way? Because he's saying here, Jesus is modeling for us what we ultimately need before we can ever serve anyone else. And he's saying, before you can serve anyone else, you must share in me. See, Peter is going to stand up. And Peter in the midst of you, you can imagine Jesus being here in the room and Jesus coming up and washing your feet. You can imagine you'd be like, no, Jesus, because why? Because, Jesus, you don't understand that I'm going to serve you. I'm, I'm going to put myself together. I'm going to prove myself to you. I should be on your team. You want me on your team, Jesus. Peter says what we think is spiritual. You shall never wash my feet. Je- Jesus, I'm not, I'm not going to have the God of the universe who... How could I ever let you wash my feet? We think that's humility. But it's refusal to recognize the real problem. So Jesus says to him, and if right now I want you to hear something. A few weeks ago I talked about being on a treadmill. in a a treadmill, like what Paul's saying is we often are on this treadmill of disappointment in our spiritual lives. And what he's saying is he wants us to get off that and onto the pathway of discipleship and joy and life in Christ. And one of the things that for many of us as religious people in the West that we do is we think that that treadmill is getting on that treadmill and doing good things for God and serving people. And if I do that enough, eventually I'll get to God. And the thing is, what he's saying is you cannot run fast enough. You cannot serve your way into the kingdom. And some of you are so tired and broken down because there's something in you that says, I have to serve my way there. I have to get my way there as if you have to grovel your way to Christ. And he's saying, he's meeting you right down there on your level. And he's saying, no, I am coming lower than you can ever go. And then he says to you, the same words he says to Peter, not angrily, not scornfully, But sincerely, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. We cannot wash ourselves or wash others enough. He's saying, do you realize when you come in, before you can enter into my kingdom, before you can enter into my presence, you don't realize the dependencies and the filth and the things that are there. I've I've opened up those Places you've long boarded over, those dark closets and nicks and crannies and things under the floorboard that are in your life. I did it long ago and I looked into it on the cross and I'm telling you now, I will wash you, I will make you clean. Let me serve you. And so, what Jesus is saying before we can go and we can join him in his work of leveraging all of the rights and privileges that we have in Christ for the good of others. Have you let him wash you? Ask yourself, where are the ways, the places in my life that I'm, I'm, you can probably usually tell because you're trying to serve others and you're angry because they don't respond the way you want. They don't give you that sense of affirmation, that sense of, ah, you're good enough. They don't change fast enough. Is it because instead of serving others with a life that's flowing through you, you're frantically trying to find life through those things? Jesus is saying, listen, he's meeting you right there where you're trying to grovel and serve and just kind of crawl your way into the kingdom. He's meeting you down there at that level and he's saying, do you see that I've already gotten lower than you and I've served you? You need me to wash you. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, Jesus is saying, once you allow me to wash you and you allow me to serve you, you will share in me and the same life that overflowed within, out of me when I created the heavens and the earth will be a joy that will flow out of you. And you won't serve others to gain salvation. you serve others because your salvation is secure. And that is completely otherworldly. It will change our city, change our homes, change our lives, change, change our world. And so next week, what we'll do is we'll unpack this further. We'll look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, and we'll consider what does it look like to join God in his work by taking all the things, all of our rights and privileges that we have in Christ and leveraging them for the good of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you We're sitting in a church. And, Lord, it can be so easy to think that our calling is to come into these walls and prove ourselves, or to prove that we're the most servant-hearted, we're the most merciful, we're the most loving, somehow to serve ourselves into your kingdom. But, Jesus, you come and you say, I must wash you. Allow me to serve you. Jesus, by your spirit, do the work you need to do in our hearts. Reveal where there is any way in which we're trying to serve our way into your kingdom. And Lord, out of that, we're missing you. And so, Lord, reach into our hearts. Grab a hold of us and point us to Christ and let us see our Savior who came in the form of a servant. The form of a man. In order to wash us and make us clean, so that we might know you, Lord, and know eternal life with you. We pray this in Jesus' name.